Chapter Six of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Six. A month later, the restoration work at Saint Sepulchre's was fairly begun, and in the south transept, a wooden platform had been raised on scaffold poles to such a height as allowed the masons to work at the vault from the inside. This roof was no doubt the portion of the fabric that called most urgently for repair but Westray could not disguise from himself that delay might prove dangerous in other directions, and he drew Sir George Farquhar's attention to more than one weak spot which had escaped the great architect's cursory inspection. But behind all Westray's anxieties lurked that dark misgiving as to the tower arches, and in his fancy the enormous weight of the central tower brooded like the incubus over the whole building. Sir George Farquhar paid sufficient attention to his deputy's representations to visit Cologne with a special view to examining the tower. He spent an autumn day in making measurements and calculations. He listened to the story of the interrupted peal and probed the cracks in the walls, but saw no reason to reconsider his former verdict or to impugn the stability of the tower. He gently rallied Westray on his nervousness, and whilst he agreed that in other places repair was certainly needed, he pointed out that lack of funds must unfortunately limit for the present both the scope of operations and the rate of progress. Cologne Abbey was dissolved with the larger religious houses in 1539, when Nicholas Finicum, the last abbot, being recalcitrant and refusing to surrender his house, was hanged as a traitor in front of the great West Gatehouse. The general revenues were impropriated by the King's Court of Augmentations, and the abbey lands in the immediate vicinity were given to Sherman, the king's physician. Spellman, in his book on sacrilege, cites Cologne as an instance where church lands brought ruin to their new owner's family. For Sherman had a spendthrift son who squandered his patrimony, and then, cabaling with Ganesh intrigues, came to the block in Queen Elizabeth's days. For evil hands have happy lands, such evil fate in store, such is the heritage that waits church robbers evermore. Thus, in the next generation, the name of Sherman was clean put away. But Sir John Fiennes, purchasing the property, founded the grammar school and almshouses as a sin offering for the misdoings of his predecessors. This measure of atonement succeeded admirably, for Horatio Fiennes was ennobled by James I, and his family, with the title of Blandamer, endures to this present. On the day before the formal dissolution of their house, the monks sung the last service in the abbey church. It was held late in the evening, partly because this time seemed to befit such a farewell, and partly that less public attention might be attracted, for there was a doubt whether the king's servants would permit any further ceremonies. Six tall candles burnt upon the altar, and the usual sconces lit the service-books that lay before the brothers in the choir-stalls. It was a sad service, as every good and amiable thing is sad when done for the last time. There were agonising hearts among the brothers, especially among the older monks, who knew not whither to go on the morrow, and the voice of the sub-prior was broken with grief, and failed him as he read the lesson. The nave was in darkness except for the warming braziers, which here and there cast a ruddy glow on the vast Norman pillars. In the obscurity were gathered little groups of townsmen. The nave had always been open for their devotions in happier days, and at the altars of its various chapels they were accustomed to seek the means of grace. That night they met for the last time, some few as curious spectators, 
but most in bitterness of heart and profound sorrow, that the great church with its splendid services was lost to them for ever. They clustered between the pillars of the arcades, and the doors that separated the nave from the choir being open, they could look through the stone screen and see the surges twinkling afar away on the high altar. Among all the sad hearts in the Abbey Church, there was none sadder than that of Richard Vinicum, merchant and wool-stapler. He was the abbot's elder brother, and to all the bitterness naturally incident to the occasion was added in his case the grief that his brother was a prisoner in London, and would certainly be tried for his life. He stood in the deep shadow of the pier that supported the northwest corner of the tower, weighed down with sorrow for the abbot and for the fall of the abbey, and uncertain whether his brother's condemnation would not involve his own ruin. It was December the 6th, St. Nicholas' Day, the day of the abbot's patron saint. He was near enough to the choir to hear the collect being read on the other side of the screen. Deus qui beatum Nicolium pontificum innumeris decorasti miraculis, tribu quaesumus ut ugis mentis et precibus argehenae incendiis liberemo, per Dominum nostrum Jesum Christum. Amen. Amen, he said in the shadow of his pillar. Blessed Nicholas, save me. Blessed Nicholas, save us all. Blessed Nicholas, save my brother. And if he must lose his temporal life, pray to our Lord Christ that he will shortly accomplish the number of his elect and reunite us in his eternal paradise. He clenched his hands in his distress, and as a flicker from the brazier fell upon him, those standing near saw the tears run down his cheeks. Nicholas qui omnem teram doctrina replevisti intercede pro peccatis nostris, said the officiant, and the monks gave the antiphon, Iste es qui contemsit vita mundi et pervenit a colestia regna. One by one a servant put out the altar lights, and as the last was extinguished, the monks rose in their places and walked out in procession, while the organ played a dirge as sad as the wind in a ruined window. The abbot was hanged before his abbey gate, but Richard Vinicom's goods escaped confiscation, and when the great church was sold, as it stood, for building material, he bought it for three hundred pounds and gave it to the parish. One part of his prayer was granted, for within a year death reunited him to his brother, and in his pious will he bequeathed his soul to Almighty God, his Maker and Redeemer, to have the fruition of the Deity with our Blessed Lady and all saints, and the Abbey Church of St. Sepulchre, with the influence thereof, to the parish of Cologne, so that the said parishioners shall not sell, alter, or alienate the said church, or implements, or any part or parcel thereof, for ever. Thus it was that the church which Westray had to restore was preserved at a critical period of its history. Richard Vinicom's generosity extended beyond the mere purchase of the building, for he left in addition a sum to support the dignity of a daily service, with the complement of three chaplains, an organist, ten singing men, and sixteen choristers. But the negligence of trustees, and the zeal of more religious-minded men than poor, superstitious Richard, had sadly diminished these funds. Successive rectors of Cologne became convinced that the spiritual interests of the town would be better served by placing a larger income at their own disposal for good works, and by devoting less to the mere lip-service of much daily singing. Thus, the stipend of the rector was gradually augmented, and Canon Parkin found an opportunity soon after his installation 
to increase the income of the living to around 2,000, by curtailing extravagance in the payment of an organist, and by reducing the emoluments of that office from 200 to 80 pounds a year. It was true that this scheme of economy included the abolition of the weekday morning service, but at three o'clock in the afternoon Evenstone was still rehearsed in Cologne Church. It was a thin and vanishing shadow of a cathedral service, and Canon Parkin hoped that it might gradually dwindle away until it was dispersed to naught. Such formalism must certainly throttle any real devotion, and it was regrettable that many of the prayers in which his own fine voice and personal magnetism must have had a moving effect upon his hearers should be constantly obscured by vain intonations. It was only by doing violence to his own high principles that he constrained himself to accept the emoluments which poor Richard Vinicom had provided for a singing foundation, and he was scrupulous in showing his disapproval of such vanities by punctilious absence from the weekday service. This ceremony was therefore entrusted to white-haired Mr. Newt, whose zeal in his master's cause had left him so little opportunity for pushing his own interests that at sixty he was stranded as an underpaid curate in the backwater of Cologne. At four o'clock, therefore, on a weekday afternoon, anyone who happened to be in St. Sepulchre's Church might see a little surplus procession issue from the vestries in the north-south transept and wind its way towards the choir. It was headed by Clark Janaway, who carried a silver-headed mace, then followed eight choristers, for the number fixed by Richard Vinicom had been diminished by half, then five singing men, of whom the youngest was fifty, and the rear was brought up by Mr. Newt. The procession having once entered the choir, the clerk shut the doors of the screen behind it, that the minds of the officiants might be properly removed from contemplation of the outer world, and that devotion might not be interrupted by any intrusion of profane persons from the nave. These outside profane existed rather in theory than fact, for except in the height of summer, visitors were rarely seen in the nave or any other part of the building. Cologne lay remote from large centres, an archaeologic interest was at this time in so languishing a condition that few, except professed antiquaries, were aware of the grandeur of the Abbey Church. If strangers troubled little about Cologne, the interest of the inhabitants in the weekday service was still more lukewarm, and the pews in front of the canopied stalls remained constantly empty. Thus Mr. Newt read, and Mr. Charnel the organist played, and the choir men and choristers sang, day by day, entirely for Clark Janaway's benefit, because there was no one else to listen to them. Yet if a stranger given to music ever entered the church at such times, he was struck with the service, for like the Homeric housewife who did the best with what she had by her, Mr. Charnel made the most of his defective organ and inadequate choir. He was a man of much taste and resource, and as the echoes of the singing rolled round the vaulted roofs, a generous critic thought little of cracked voices and leaky bellows and rattling trackers, but took away with him an harmonious memory of sunlight and coloured glass and eighteenth-century music, and perhaps of some clear treble voice, for Mr. Charnel was famed for training boys and discovering the gift of song. St. Luke's Little Summer, in the October that followed the commencement of the Restoration, amply justified its name. In the middle of the month there were several days of such unusual beauty as to recall the real summer, and the air was so still and the sunshine so warm that anyone looking at the soft haze on Cologne Flat might well have thought that August had returned. Cullenminster was, as a rule, refreshingly cool in the warmth of summer, 
but something of the heat and oppressiveness of the outside air seemed to have filtered into the church on these insensibly warm autumn days. On a certain Saturday, a more than usual drowsiness marked the afternoon service. The choir plumped down into their places when the psalms were finished, and abandoned themselves to slumber with little attempt at concealment as Mr. Newt began the first lesson. There were indeed honourable exceptions to the general somnolence. On the cantorist side, the worn-out alto held an animated conversation with the cracked tenor. They were comparing some specially fine onions under the desk, for both were gardeners, and the autumn leek show was near at hand. On the decaney side, Patrick Ovens, a red-haired little treble, was kept awake by the necessity for altering Magnificat into Magnified Cat in his copy of Aldrich in G. The lesson was a long one. Mr. Newt, mildest and most beneficent of men, believed that he was at his best in denunciatory passages of Scripture. The prayer book, it was true, had appointed a portion of the Book of Wisdom for the afternoon lesson, but Mr. Newt made light of authorities, and read instead a chapter from Isaiah. If he had been questioned as to this proceeding, he would have excused himself by saying that he disapproved of the Apocrypha, even for instruction of manners, and there was no one at Cologne at all likely to question this right of private judgment. But his real, though perhaps unconscious, motive was to find a suitable passage for declamation. He thundered forth judgments in a manner which combined, he believed, the terrors of supreme justice with an infinite commiseration for the blindness of errant but long-forgotten peoples. He had, in fact, that Bible voice, which seeks to communicate additional solemnity to the Scriptures by reciting them in a tone never employed in ordinary life, as the fledging curate adds gravity to the litany by whispering, The hour of death and day of judgment. Mr. Newt, being short-sighted, did not see how lightly the punishments of these ancient races passed over the heads of his dozing audience, and was bringing the long lesson to a properly dramatic close, when the unexpected happened. The screen door opened, and a stranger entered. As the blowing of a horn by the paladin broke the repose of a sentry, and called back to life the spellbound princess and her court, so these slumbering churchmen were startled from their dreams by the intruder. The choir-boys fell to giggling. The choir-men stared. Clark Janaway grasped his mace, as if he would brain so rash an adventurer, and the general movement made Mr. Charnel glance nervously at his stops, for he thought that he had overslept himself, and that the choir had stood up for the Magnificat. The stranger seemed unconscious of the attention which his appearance provoked. He was no doubt some casual sightseer, and had possibly been unaware that any service was in progress until he opened the screen-door. But once there, he made up his mind to join in the devotions, and was walking to the steps which led up to the stalls, when Clark Janaway popped out of his place and accosted him, quoting the official regulations in something louder than a stage whisper. "'Ye cannot enter the choir during the hours of divine service. Ye cannot come in!' The stranger was amused at the old man's officiousness. "'I am in,' he whispered back, "'and being in will take a seat, if you please, until the service is over.' The clerk looked at him doubtfully for a moment, but if there was amusement to be read in the other's countenance, there was also a decision that did not encourage opposition. So he thought better of the matter, and opened the door of one of the pews that run below the stalls in Cologne Church. But the stranger did not appear to notice that a place was being shown him, 
and walked past the pew and up the little steps that led to the stalls on the cantoris side. Directly behind the singing men were five stalls, which had canopies richer and more elaborate than those of the others, with heraldic escutcheons painted on the backs. From these seats the vulgar herd was excluded by a faded crimson cord. But the stranger lifted the cord from its hook, and sat down in the first reserve seat, as if the place belonged to him. Clark Janoway was outraged, and bustled up the steps after him like an angry turkey-cock. "'Come, come,' he said, touching the intruder on the shoulder. "'You cannot sit here. These are the folding seats, and kept for Lord Bladamer's family.' "'I will make room if Lord Bladamer brings his family,' the stranger said, and seeing that the old man was returning to the attack, added, "'Hush, that is enough.' The clerk looked at him again, and then turned back to his own place, routed. "'And in that day they shall roar against thee like the roaring of the sea, and if one look unto the Lamb, behold darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof,' said Mr. Newt, and shut the book, with a glance of general fulmination through his great round spectacles. The choir, who had been interested spectators of this conflict of lawlessness as personified in the intruder, and authority as in the clerk, rose to their feet as the organ began the Magnificat. The singing men exchanged glances of amusement, for they were not altogether averse to seeing the clerk worsted. He was an autocrat in his own church, and ruffled them now and again with what they called his bumptiousness. Perhaps he did assume a little as he led the procession, or for he forgot at times that he was a peaceable servant of the sanctuary, and fancied, as he marched, mace in hand, to the music of the Orden, that he was a daring officer leading a forlorn hope. That very afternoon he had had a heated discussion in the vestry with Mr. Milligan, the bass, on a question of gardening, and the singer, who still smarted under the clerk's overbearing tongue, was glad to emphasise his adversary's defeat by paying attention to the intruder. The tenor on the cantorist side was taking holiday that day, and Mr. Milligan availed himself of the opportunity to offer the absentee's copy of the service to the intruder, who was sitting immediately behind him. He turned round and placed the book, open at the Magnificat, before the stranger with much deference, casting as he faced round again a look of misprision at Janoway, of which the latter was quick to appreciate the meaning. This by-play was lost upon the stranger, who nodded his acknowledgment of the civility, and turned to the study of the score which had been offered him. Mr. Charnel's resources in the way of men's voices were so limited that he was by no means unused to finding himself short of a voice-part on the one side or the other. He had done his best to remedy the deficiency in the psalms by supplying the missing part with his left hand, but as he began the Magnificat he was amazed to hear a mellow and fairly strong tenor taking part in the service with feeling and precision. It was the stranger who stood in the gap, and when the first surprise was passed, the choir welcomed him as being versed in their own arts, and Clark Janoway forgot the presumption of his entrance and even the rebellious conduct of Mr. Milligan. The men and boys sang with new life. They wished, in fact, that so knowledgeable a person should be favourably impressed, and the service was rendered in a more creditable way than Cologne Church had known for many a long day. Only the stranger was perfectly unmoved. He sang as if he had been a lay vicar all his life and when the Magnificat was ended, and Mr. Charnel could look through the curtains of the organ-loft, the organist saw him with a Bible, devoutly following Mr. Newt in the second lesson.
He was a man of forty, rather above the middle height, with dark eyebrows and dark hair that was beginning to turn grey. His hair, indeed, at once attracted the observer's attention by its thick profusion and natural wavy curl. He was clean-shaven, his features were sharply cut without being thin, and there was something contemptuous about the firm mouth. His nose was straight, and a powerful face gave the impression of a man who was accustomed to be obeyed. To anyone looking at him from the other side of the choir, he presented a remarkable picture, for which the black oak of Abbot Vinicum's stalls supplied a frame. Above his head the canopy went soaring up into crockets and finials, and on the woodwork at the back was painted a shield which nearer inspection would have shown to be the Blandeva cognizance, with its nebulae bars of green and silver. It was, perhaps, so commanding an appearance that made red-haired Patrick Ovens take out an Australian postage stamp which he had acquired that very day, and point out to the boy next to him the effigy of Queen Victoria sitting crowned in a Gothic chair. The stranger seemed to enter thoroughly into the spirit of the performance. He bore his part in the service bravely, and being furnished with another book, lent effective aid with the anthem. He stood up decorously as the choir filed out after the grace, and then sat down again in his seat to listen to the voluntary. Mr. Charnel determined to play something of quality as a tribute to the unknown tenor, and gave as good a rendering of the St. Anne's fugue as the state of the organ would permit. It was true that the trackers rattled terribly, and that a cipher marred the effect of the second subject, but when he got to the bottom of the little winding stairs that led down from the loft, he found the stranger waiting with a compliment. "'Thank you very much,' he said. "'It is very kind of you to give us so fine a fugue. "'It is many years since I was last in this church, "'and I am fortunate to have chosen so sunny an afternoon, "'and to have been in time for your service.' "'Not at all, not at all,' said the organist. "'It is we who are fortunate in having you to help us. "'You read well, and have a useful voice.' "'I caught you tripping a little in the lead of the Nunc Dimittis Gloria.' "'And he sung it over by way of reminder. "'You understand church music, and have sung many a service before, I am sure. "'Though you don't look much given that way,' he added, scanning him up and down. "'The stranger was amused rather than offended at these blunt criticisms, "'and the catechising went on. "'Are you stopping in Cologne?' "'No,' the other replied courteously. "'I am only here for the day, but I hope I may find other occasions to visit the place and to hear your service. "'You will have your full complement of voices next time I come, no doubt, "'and I shall be able to listen more at my ease than to-day.' "'Oh, no, you won't. It's ten to one you will find us still worse off. "'We are a poverty-stricken lot, and no one to come over into Macedonia to help us. "'These cursed priests eat up our substance like canker-worms, "'and grow sleek on the money that was left to keep the music going.' "'I don't mean the old woman that read this afternoon. "'He's got his nose on the ground stone like the rest of us. "'Poor Newt. "'He has to put brown paper in his boots "'because he can't afford to have them resold. "'No, it's the Barabbas in the rectory house "'that buys his stocks and shares and starves the service.' "'This tirade fell lightly on the stranger's ears. "'He looked as if his thoughts were a thousand miles away, "'and the organist broke off. "'Do you play the organ? "'Do you understand an organ?' he asked quickly. "'Alas, I do not play,' the stranger said, bringing his mind back with a jerk for the answer, and understand little about the instrument. "'Well, next time you're here, come up into the loft, and I will show you what a chest of rattle-traps I have to work with. We are lucky to get through a service without a breakdown. The pedal-board is too short and past its work, 
and now the bellows are worn out. Surely you can get that altered, the stranger said. The bellows shouldn't cost so much to mend. They are patched already past mending. Those who'd like to pay for new ones haven't got the money, and those who have the money won't pay. Why, that very stall you sat in belongs to a man who could give us new bellows and a new organ and a new church if we wanted it. Blandamer, that's his name, Lord Blandamer. If you had looked, you could have seen his great coat of arms on the back of the seat, and he won't spend a halfpenny to keep the roofs from falling on our heads. Ah, said the stranger, seems a very sad case. They reached the north door, and as they stepped out, he repeated meditatively, It seems a very sad case. You must tell me more about it next time we meet. The organist took the hint, and wished his companion good afternoon, turning down towards the wharves for a constitutional on the riverside. The stranger raised his hat with something of foreign courtesy, and walked back into the town. End of chapter 6